Thank you for that. Amen. Uh, Titus chapter 1 this evening, please. Titus chapter number 1. And we, of course, now for about the last six months have been working our way through the pastorals. We began with 1 Timothy. And in our Bibles, of course, 2 Timothy follows 1 Timothy, followed by Titus. But chronologically, Titus comes before 2 Timothy. And so we will turn our attention to it. Let's go ahead and stand, please. And the first four verses, the introduction to the letter, will be our portion this evening. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Well, Father, again, we pray for your help that we would understand your word properly so that we would know how to respond to it so that we would think about our own doctrine, and our own lives, and make sure that they line up with yours. And so we pray again for your help, that your Spirit, Father, that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, would expand our minds and enlarge our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may, of course, be seated. So Titus is very similar, runs along the same lines in many ways that 1 Timothy does. It is written, of course, by the same man, Paul, to two of the younger men that served the Lord by serving Paul. They occupy really kind of an unusual position. They, they are pastors, but they are also we might say, apostolic assistance, and they travel with Paul. And he has left, of course, Timothy in Ephesus, and we will soon discover, if we didn't already know this, that he has dispatched Titus to the island of Crete. There's about 1,200 miles separating Crete and Ephesus, Uh, That's a long distance, even in our world. It was a world of difference to Paul's world. Um, There are very few places that saw a lot of international travel, and the people of Crete were culturally different than the people of Ephesus. And I mentioned that because it is fascinating that people who are in 
so many ways so different, are going to receive essentially the same message from the Lord. Um, We like to, I don't mean we, you and me, but in in our world it is very common now to, to think of the Bible as a book that springs out of a particular culture, cultural situation, and since we're not that same cultural situation, perhaps we don't have to pay close attention to it. Perhaps it's not really for us, it was just for that particular cultural manifestation. But that just isn't the way the Bible works, that isn't the way God works. Um, he is pressing far into beyond simply a cultural expression into the attitude of hearts. And human natures are the same, whether they be human natures in antiquity, confined to the island of Crete, or the larger city of Ephesus, or Omaha, Nebraska, or any other place. The human heart is the same, and our inclinations are always the same. And so this is part of the beauty for us, that God talks to these different people 1,200 miles apart geographically, certainly some cultural distinctions, but he talks to them along the same lines, and we should never find that frustrating. And as Paul does in his introductions... And of course, introductions and conclusions to the biblical letters are just that. They are part of the inspired record, but they are not the main body of teaching. Um, Although in the passage that we have just read this evening, we are given, and we will spend much of our time thinking about the fact, that we have been given this critical insight into the way God operates in his churches Let's begin in verse number 1, and Paul, as he usually does, introduces himself with reference to his standing and his relationship with God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. We know that his birth name was Saul. That is the Hebrew rendition of his name. We know that the word Saul means little or small. And we can speculate forever. We don't know that he was as a man small. We can assume that perhaps as a child or as an infant he was small. That's neither here nor there. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul makes the announcement that his ministry is going to be now primarily to the Gentiles, from that point on, the Bible never calls him Saul, but always he refers to himself by his Gentile designation, Paul. And I think it is just that simple, that Paul, having come to the realization that his ministry would be a ministry to Gentiles, He just embraces the Gentile pronunciation of his name. I am Paul. From Acts chapter 13 on, and in all of his letters, he is always Paul. Titus, of course, knows who's writing the letter. Titus knows the letter from Paul, but the letter is going to go beyond Titus so that even thousands of years later it comes to us. So he is Paul, God's, Slave, God's bond servant, a man who considers himself entirely 
under the ownership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And an apostle. And an apostle. And of course we know that the word apostle refers to one who has been designated or sent on a mission. And it can describe both an office as it does here or a task as it does here. Paul is discharging the office because he has the task. So he is God's messenger with God's message on God's mission. And as a slave, he has, of course, no alternative but obedience to that which he has been called. And we know from all of the other Bible records that these are common ways that Paul thinks about himself with reference to the Lord. That he is God's slave. He calls himself in Galatians and in Romans and in Titus, God's slave. And 18 times he calls himself an apostle. He introduces himself to the churches as an apostle. A man holding an office. So in verse number 1 we have Paul introducing himself as we should think of ourselves. Primarily in this world as we are related to the Lord. That we are God's people. That we are Christians first. That we are God's servants. That we have a responsibility to perform God's will. And then in verses 2 through 3, or verses actually 1 through 3, Paul orients the reader to his mission. He He's God's slave. And he is on God's assignment. What is the assignment? What is it that an apostle will do? What is the nature of his relationship? So again, we go back to verse number one. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an apostle according to the faith of God's elect? Does it mean that somehow our faith, because we are God's elect, does it mean that somehow our faith validates Paul's office? According to the faith of God's elect. And the answer to that is no. That is not what he is getting at. He is not relating his office to us. He is relating his office to the faith. The word according means just that. According to the faith of God's elect. Paul's mission that God has given to him is a mission that is tied to the faith. And almost always, folks, when we see it put in that construction, the faith, our simplest and and most safest way to think about it is to think of it in terms of the entirety of the Bible. Everything that God has taught us about himself and what he has taught us about ourselves and what he has taught us about sin and righteousness and salvation and what he is doing in the world, this is the faith. The faith. 
And then Paul goes on to say, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. And I want to pause there. And I want to address that. If we were Greek readers, which we are not, we would know that there are no verbs in in verse number one. There is only one verb in verse number two. And that is with reference to God. He made a promise. And I'm saying all that, folks, because I just want us to understand that there is no instruction being given to us in verses 1 and 2. There are three verbs in verse number 3 that we will come back to. They are manifested, committed. I'm sorry, two verbs in verse number 3. Manifested and committed. And again, both of those are things that God is doing. All of the action to this point is God's action. There's nothing for us to do. What our translators did, and I realize that I'm being somewhat critical or at least asking a question of something that they did over 400 years ago. What they did was take a noun and treat it like a verb. And that is in the word acknowledging. But it isn't a verb and it isn't even really a participle which is the way it is being treated here. It's just simply a noun. To know. Not to, not to acquire the knowledge of, not to in any way be active in obtaining the knowledge, but simply to have the knowledge. Knowledge as a noun, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which is after godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And again, I'm not here just trying to nitpick the text of Scripture, but Paul introduces himself Not so much to Titus, who already knows this, but to us. That he is God's slave, and that he has an assignment from God as his delegate. And that assignment has to do with the faith, the body of truth that God has revealed to us. People need to know that truth. No one is benefited if the Bible is locked in an airtight, waterproof closet. People need to know that truth. But it isn't that people need to acknowledge that truth. They need to know it. And the truth has to do with being rightly related to God. It is the truth according to godliness. It is going towards being in a right relationship with God, which certainly includes the act of salvation, but also the life of sanctification, of being brought ever into a greater understanding of the practice and exercise of godliness. 
And that truth of God is our hope then in verse number 2. In hope of eternal life. The confident expectation that the faith will lead us to eternal life. Which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now this then, folks, is what Paul did, right? I mean, anytime that you find Paul interacting with people, talking to people, preaching with people, whether he was in the public square as he was at Mars Hill or whether he was in a prison cell, Paul was exposing people to the truth of God's word. And he did this because this was his assignment and he always did it regardless of the consequences because he was God's slave. My master has told me to tell you about himself. Here is what you need to know. I don't like it very much. Well, I didn't come here to make you mad, but my master has told me to tell you something. And you need to know what it is. This is what Paul always did. This was the way Paul always conducted himself. Paul was always oriented. You can read about his commitment to that orientation in 1 Corinthians 9. That everything to Paul was about the good news. Was about the gospel. And at this point in time, Paul then introduces. Right? He's been talking about himself. I am Paul. I am God's slave. I am God's apostle. Here is the nature of my mission. It is to make the truth known. It is the truth of eternal life. And now we can look at the verbs. Verse number 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie. He is without lie. It is not possible that he has told us this to be fact. And it is not fact. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. He cannot mislead. Promised before the world began. Verse number 2. So in adult Sunday school this morning, we talked about the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now there were lots of things that were going on before you get to Genesis 1-1 that pertain to us, folks. Right? Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So before Genesis 1-1, Jesus had, in effect, been crucified. And before Genesis 1-1, God had made this promise. I mean, so let's, I'm, I, you know, I'm not trying to insult you, but let's try and make sure we get our minds around this. Let's, let's, go, let's go all the way back. Right? Let's just work our way back through the ages. 
Let's go back to Pentecost, right? There's the beginning of the church. And let's go before that and we're into the gospel era. And let's go to the Malachi. Let's go backward 400 years. We're in Malachi and the, and the, and the post-exile period of time. And then let's go beyond that. And we're backwards into the 70 years of the captivity. And let's go backwards beyond that. And we're into the day of Isaiah. And let's keep going backward. And we're into the glories of the Davidic kingdom. And let's keep going backward. And we're in the Exodus. And let's keep going backward in the Garden of Eden. And then let's keep going backward and the world doesn't exist. And there is nothing but God, Father, Son, Spirit. And the Father makes a promise. That's when he makes the promise. That there will be eternal life for those that believe. That's what Paul is arguing. He's not trying to be quirky and he's not trying to be novel he's making a really important point that before there was ever the first man formed in the garden of eden the promise was made that there would be for mankind life eternal and this is made by a god who cannot lie and who cannot deceive Verse number two, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised. Promised. There's the verb. God made a promise to mankind. I made mention of the fact this morning that the entirety of the creation story is written with fallen man in mind. It is told to help buttress the story of both our fall and our redemption. There's a promise before the world began. That brings me to verse number three. But hath in due times manifested. There is the next verb. Hath in due times manifested. So before Adam and Eve were ever brought into existence which certainly means thousands of years before you and I were brought into existence, God made a promise to us. Now, if Adam and Eve didn't exist, and if you and I didn't exist, how do we know about the promise? How would you know that there is a promise? The promise was made before we were here. And this is what Paul is explaining. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. Through preaching. The promise that was made before we were brought into existence is brought into our view. Through the proclamation of his word. And he has done this in his own times. That's what the word due times means. It means his own time. Like if somebody said, when, right? You know, and I I hope that nobody has had this conversation in the last seven days, but when are you going to take out the trash? When I'm ready. 
That's what I'm going to take out the trash when I'm ready. And when are you going to make the promise? No, when I'm ready. And Paul is not suggesting there, folks, that God is not ready. What Paul is doing is referring to the fact that God has, over the course of time, in his own time, revealed that message to us incrementally. There's a sense in which it all happened in the past, right? Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And God has, over the course of human history, manifested his word through its proclamation. And he has done this in his own time, which actually is plural there, times, rightly so, in the seasons that he has chosen. Hebrews 1.1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So God has made the promise known. The promise is contained in his word. And in the times that God has decided, he has made his word known through its proclamation. That's what the word preaching there actually refers to. Preaching folks, right? And there's a place. There really is a place. There's a place for interactive Bible conversations. There's a place, I think, for those, for those publicly where, where we interact with each other about the meaning of Scripture. But genuine preaching, folks, is not a conversation. Genuine preaching is the proclamation of God's word. Here's what God said. And this is a word that we may have to think about a little bit, but nobody in Paul's world had to think about it. Right? A proclamation. We could perhaps think of it like this. Over the course of the last couple of years, when it comes to edicts, governments have made lots of proclamations. They have just told us the way things are going to be. Everybody is going to wear a mask. Proclamation. The will of the government made known by decree. This is the, what the word means. This is what it refers to. This is what the Roman government did. They didn't have media outlets or the internet. They just sent individual messengers around who went out into the public sphere unrolled the scroll and read, in effect, here is what the emperor says. This is now what everybody will do or stop doing. God has manifested his word through its proclamation. God has made his promises known by having them publicly announced. And then back to verse number three. Right? There is a verb promised in number two, manifested in verse number three, and the second verb in verse number three, committed. He has committed it unto me. So the God who cannot lie, 
whose slave I am, whose messenger I am, has entrusted me with this task. This is the defining dimension to my apostleship. I proclaim God's word. I just find a place and tell people what God said. And what God said, he said long before there were any people. Because it precedes the actual universe that we know. I'm just its messenger. Now again, folks, and we don't really get into this in Titus. We probably get into it a little bit more. We will a little bit later on in 1 Corinthians. But there is just a heavy amount of pressure on the modern church to be dismissive of large parts of the New Testament because they are culturally irrelevant, which fails to grasp the reality that God said what he was going to say before there were any people in any culture in which to operate. In 2 Timothy 1.11, Paul writes this to Timothy, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this cause, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Not, I know what I have believed, but I know who I have believed. I have believed the God who does not lie. That's who I believe. So this is the mandate, this is the injunction, this is the commandment. Here is how Paul introduces himself. I am God's servant. I am God's apostle. He has chosen me, but he hasn't just chosen me to deliver any old message that I feel like. He has chosen me to deliver his promise. Now his promise, you have to understand, his promise was made before any of us were in existence, but his promise is the promise of eternal life. And he's not lying about that. And what God has chosen to do is over the course of human history make that promise known by proclaiming it. By proclaiming it to people. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus sent the apostles to do. Go preach. Go make the proclamation. The context is always the same. Some are going to accept it. Many are going to reject it. Just proclaim it. Proclaim it. Make the proclamation known. And that brings us then to verse number four. Because at this point, Paul begins to transfer not his office of being an apostle, but the task of being a preacher to Timothy, or to Titus. To Titus, my own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now that's as far as we're going to read this evening, and I just want to make this note. There's, there's a conversation 
among those who write and study such things as to whether Paul's expression, to Titus, mine own son after the common faith, means that he had led Titus to the Lord. It is the same thing that he uses to describe Timothy. He calls Timothy the same exact thing, my own son after the faith. I don't think this is just the way I would understand it, wouldn't fight with you, that Paul is making, trying to make the point that he won Timothy and Titus to the Lord. And I say that in part because in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, he is pretty insistent that we don't take responsibility for those kinds of things. The worker is the Lord, and, and he is the one who is doing the work, and he is the one who gets the credit. So I tend to think of it more as an aspect of unity and fellowship. That I am Paul the Apostle and Timothy and Titus are companion preachers and we are serving the same Lord for the same purpose. And Paul then wishes for Titus these same three spiritual abilities that he wishes for Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. So that he might fulfill the word. Right? And let me just give you two references right away to to point this out, right? Because right, Paul is Paul is taking the ministry that God has given to him. Not the office, but the ministry, the ministry of proclaiming the word, making the truth known. And he has, in 1 Timothy, laid it at Timothy's feet. And in Titus, he lays it at Titus's feet. So if you look, for instance, at Titus 1.5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. He goes on to expand upon that. Just look down at verse number 9. Holding fast the faithful word as thou hast been taught, as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, and we would understand that to mean exhort the believers, and to convince or convict the gainsayers, those who contradict the word. So, what we're going to see, folks, is kind of this progression. That works through. God has commissioned Paul to be an apostle. His task is to proclaim God's word. Titus, your task is to proclaim God's word. And your task is to be a participant in the ordination of others who will proclaim God's word. So that the faithful proclamation of the word can accomplish two purposes. It can encourage those who believe and it can correct those who don't. That there is a Bible answer for those who would contradict the word. So Paul is God's servant. He is God's messenger. Paul, what do you do as God's servant? And as God's apostle, I preach. 
I preach the truth of God's word which is supposed to be known by men. Because that word promises them eternal life and orients their life in such a way that they are rightly related to the Lord. That's what I do. Now I just want to stop there. and I just just want to spend a little more time kind of winding this sermon down that I do with most conclusions. Before the world was created, God made a promise that there would be eternal life for those that believe. Now that's the very short condensed version, folks. We know there's, there's an entire Bible, 66 books, thousands of verses, thousands of words. There's a chronology to that. There is a history to that. God wants people to know that. And the way they know that is by preaching. In other words, God does not just allow people to have a five-minute glimpse into hell. It is something He could do. And I don't mean a five-minute glimpse into hell in the sense that you get to read about some guy who was in hell for five minutes. I mean God could let every human being experience five minutes of hell. And then he could snatch every human being out of hell and he could say, now will you believe? I'd like you to believe. Will you believe me now? That is not what he does. God could take everybody to heaven. He took Paul to heaven. God could transport every human being and give them five minutes to see what an eternal bliss looks like. And then plop them right back on planet earth and go, now will you believe? Won't you believe now? Now that you have seen, will you now believe? But what he actually did, folks, when he took Paul to heaven was he he closed his mouth about it. So that Paul said, oh, I saw things, but I'm not allowed to tell you what I saw. And we might think, what, a, what an event. I mean, I, I don't have any idea, folks. I, it didn't even cross my mind. Until this I have no idea how many books have been sold by people on the basis of, I went to heaven and let me tell you about it. Imagine if Paul could back up his message. By giving us some juicy tidbits about what he saw when he was transported to heaven. But he does not. God could take us all back. It would be possible. He could do it, folks, and let us watch him create the earth. And he could take us back to that moment when there is no earth. And he could go, watch this. Earth. 
And there it is. But he doesn't do that. Has not somebody at some point in time tried to make the case to you that that would have been very effective for them? Back when I worked at Indiana State Prison, golly, now 40 years ago, we had one of the sergeants, and he was just, he would talk to you all day long. He would boom to talk to you, but he always wanted the same thing. He always wanted evidence. Something concrete, something tangible. Take me to hell for five minutes. Take me to heaven for five minutes. Take me to creation. Let me see it. Let me look at God. Just make it possible for me to look at God and see Him for just a few minutes and then, and then I will be rightly oriented. But that is not what God done. What God has done, folks, according to the text of Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God has chosen to make His promises known simply by having them proclaimed. So that we come together and the God that we have never seen, we open a book that we say these are his words to us and now we're all going to listen to God speak for the next 40 minutes. And this is what he has chosen to do. It is not the world's most popular task, is it? It is not the world's most popular pastime, is it? In fact, folks, I feel pretty safe in saying that in many churches, preaching is both abused and neglected. And by many people viewed as a burden to be borne. Even by pastors... And by the way, I would like to once again express my gratitude to you that the ministry, the Church of Westwood Heights, does not levy upon me so many responsibilities and expectations that I have little time to be prepared to speak. But what does it say about a pastor who does a thousand things in the course of the week and then at 10 o'clock Saturday night is trying to get a sermon ready. What does he think about preaching? Paul thought very highly of it. And he didn't think highly of it because he was a preacher. He thought highly of it because it was the method that God had chosen to make his word known to his people. Here are all these glorious promises. Why don't you just show them to me? No, I want to tell you about them and I want you to believe that. But growing folk, increasingly the pressure upon both the pulpit and from the pew is just take a little bit of time and give me a little bit of Bible. And Paul tells us that there is coming a time when people will not endure sound doctrine, but they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. 
so that men like Joel Osteen will fill stadiums with people who want to come and be affirmed. But not people who want to come and hear God talk. And this is one of the perils, folks, of making music more important than preaching in a church. And I would caution you about allowing yourself to cultivate a mentality where you would rather be in any other part of the building but hearing the preaching. Not because of me, but because this is what God has chosen to do, to manifest His Word through its proclamation. Now, there are times, right? I mean, we're going to get to this. The pastor will say to the Hebrews, I exhort you to endure this word of exhortation. And the word endure means just that, endure it. And Peter is going to write that sometimes Paul says things that are hard to be understood and sometimes we're just going to bog down and get lost. But folks, it doesn't alter the fact that God has chosen, this is his will, to magnify the proclamation of his word. This is the primary thing that is supposed to happen in a public church service. The proclamation of his word. Let's pray. Father, help us to have your mind about this. You have chosen to manifest your word through preaching. It isn't about the preacher. It is about your word. It is about the way that you wish to teach and reveal your word to us. Help us to honor it. Help us to not despise it. To think lightly of it or be dismissive of it when it is so important to you. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.